It's good to sing the good news, amen? Amen, it's been done. And Father, we rest this morning in the promise that this work has been finished. God, we don't come here today to finish what you started. We come here to declare that the work has already been done. We stand today in the victory of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that through repentance of our sins, through faith in his name, that victory is ours today. Father, we thank you that through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus, sin and death and hell and the grave have been conquered, that the enemy has no claim on those who belong to you, who have been united to you by faith. And so, Father, this morning, once again, set our eyes on the cross. Set our eyes on the empty tomb. Set our eyes on you. So, Lord, as we come to your word today, don't let us be those who see without actually seeing. Don't let us be those who hear without actually hearing. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts? That these would not just be truths that we amen in our minds, but truths that we believe and embrace in our hearts and live with our hands. So, Father, use your word this morning. Make us sensitive to our sin. Make us sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to do business with you today. And we pray that you and your kindness would meet with us through your word. We ask this all in the mighty, matchless, marvelous name of your son, Jesus Christ. And the church said, amen. Amen. Hey, can we rejoice one more time this morning as we sit down today? Praise God for the finished work of the cross. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead uh, and have a seat, and uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ezra chapters 9 and 10. That's in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar, use your table of contents of the Bible, Ezra chapters 9 and 10. I always want to remind you, if you don't own a Bible as you leave today, there's black hardback Bibles available on the table as you walk out. Uh, feel free to grab one of those as you leave. That's our gift to you, and it's our hope and prayer uh, that you'll carry that with you on Sunday mornings, that you will come prepared uh, to engage and to see God's Word for yourself. I'm always saying from the front here, don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. And the way you do this is by knowing what it says and having it right in front of you. So bring a Bible with you. Take a Bible with you uh, as you go today if you don't own one. Uh, Ezra 9 and 10 is where we'll be. And you're with us for the very first time today. Uh, What we've been doing as a church family for the last several weeks as we've been walking through the Old Testament book of Ezra. Uh, we'll wrap that up this morning. Then, Lord willing, next week we're going to move straight into the book of Nehemiah. These two were written originally as one volume, but we'll wrap up this morning, Ezra chapters 9 and 10. It's funny how the Lord works sometimes. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, both Dustin and I uh, shared quotes with you from a, a classic book from the late 1950s written by a man named Leonard Ravenhill called Why Revival Tarries. We'd really not communicated or, or collaborated over that at all, but uh, as we as a church family this year, we have been praying, we have been fasting, we have been seeking the Lord, and if you're new this morning, we as a church right now, we are praying for nothing less than a supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God on his church, on our church, in our community, and on this nation, because we want to see God move. And so together, we have been seeking the Lord in prayer and fasting. So my heart was drawn back uh, to this book that I've read a couple of times before, but uh, I had a, a, just a digital copy of the book, and I'm, I'm a purist. I know that you can do these things on tablets, but I like to have still a physical copy of the book. Who's with me on that? You still got to praise it. You are God's people. Amen for that this morning. I got to have a physical copy of the book. I like to highlight it. I like to mark it up. 
I like to make notes in the margins. I like to underline things. And uh, so I ordered it a couple of weeks ago, week before last. My copy of, of uh, Why Revival Terries came into the mail. And when I opened uh, up the bubble mailer that the book was sent in, there was one detail on the cover of the book that immediately grabbed my attention. And that detail is that the cover endorsement was made by Ravi Zacharias. Now, some of you groan a little bit when I say that uh, because you know where I'm, I'm going with this this morning. But for those of you who might not be familiar. Uh, Ravi Zacharias was one of the most brilliant Christian thinkers of the last hundred years. He had a global ministry. He would travel all over the world into some of the most hostile and skeptical academic environments that you can imagine. And Ravi was a prolific defender of the faith. He would go into these public settings and he would make a, a rational and logical defense of the Christian faith. And his work over the last few decades has strengthened the faith of millions of people worldwide, including my own. I can think of few people who influenced me more early in my spiritual journey than Ravi Zacharias. When I was a freshman and sophomore in school at Appalachian State, I had a number of friends who were very skeptical, very hostile even toward the Christian faith. And uh, it was being exposed to the work of Ravi Zacharias that really equipped me and empowered me to be able to share the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel in a loving, gracious way because of what I was learning from Ravi. He passed away uh, last year, and he was celebrated as a saint, someone who had lived a life well to the glory of God. But tragically, in recent days, it has been discovered and it's been uh, affirmed and proven that throughout the course of his ministry, there was a long-standing pattern of sexual abuse. Not long after he passed away, there was a group of very brave women who came forward, and they told stories of coercion and manipulation and extortion. They told stories of abuse and of assault at the hands of, of Ravi. And uh, man, for, for those of us who were impacted by his life, it, it has just been devastating. Someone that we so looked up to as a hero, someone that we so revered, who had so impacted the faith of millions of people. And he's the kind of guy that when he falls, it just makes you say, listen, if even Ravi Zacharias isn't real, then is there any way for us to truly know who the real people of God are? If even Ravi is capable of this, is it possible to truly know who God's people are? And, and situations like this have, have just caused devastating impacts to the faith of millions of people worldwide. But as we've seen, as we've studied uh, the, the book of Ezra over the last several weeks, is we can have confidence as the people of God is that no matter how ugly things might seem, even when the leaders among the people fall, we can trust that the Lord always preserves a true remnant of his people. We always have confidence that no matter how ugly things might seem, no matter how, how bad it feels like things have gotten, even when our leaders fall, we trust that the Lord will preserve a remnant of his people. And when we get to this point in the book of Ezra, we've seen over the last couple of weeks that Ezra has now led the second wave of exiles out of captivity to return to their home in Jerusalem. And Ezra had a prolific ministry of the word. It was the simple unfolding of the word of God. He was calling the people back to true worship. And as Ezra unfolded, the word of God before them, the people became aware of the fact that they had fallen into serious sin. But instead of minimizing it, instead of suppressing it, instead of sidestepping it, what we get in Ezra chapters 9 and 10 for us today is a picture of textbook repentance. What it means to deal honestly with our sin, to meet it head on, to run to God in our morning, trusting that he will meet us in his mercy and he will forgive us and bring healing to our hearts. On the cover endorsement of this book, Ravi had written, this book, uh, this is the book that shaped me probably more dramatically than any book that I have ever read. 
And church, that this book cover this morning is an entire sermon in and of itself. We asked the question this morning, why does revival tarry? Why does revival delay? Church, revival tarries because the people of God will not deal honestly with sin. And this morning, we're going to see from God's Word what it means to be people who deal honestly with sin. So if you're following along in your notes this morning, the central truth that we're going to draw out of this passage today, we're going to see, is that the true remnant, the true remnant, those who have been delivered from sin, those who have not been falling into sin, the true remnant of God's people is marked by genuine repentance that leads to lasting change. We are praying for revival in our community. We're praying for revival in the culture. We're praying for revival in our country. But church, before there will be revival in the world, there has to be repentance in here. It starts with the people of God who are willing to deal honestly with sin. And when we do, we can trust that the Lord will move and meet with us again. So let's read from Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. As it writes, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they've taken some of the daughters to be wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost." So this is our picture this morning of textbook repentance. We see first that it begins with a recognition of our sin. Repentance begins with the recognition of our sin. Here's what's conspired here in chapter 9. Since returning from exile, many of the formerly exiled people have intermarried with those who were from the surrounding pagan nations, and chief among the offenders with the Jewish people were their leaders, It was the leaders who were foremost in this work. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 7 had clearly shown that when the people of God entered the promised land coming out of Egyptian captivity, he had forbidden marrying into the pagan nations. Now, uh, there's an important detail we really need to clarify because there's times this passage, unfortunately, has really been misconstrued and abused. We need to understand this morning, uh, this was not about a racial separation of people. We know that this is true because while God had called the nation of Israel to be holy and separate, he had also called them through the prophet Isaiah to be a light to the nations. It was God's desire that the nations would be brought in to true worship of the one true God. This was not a racial separation. We've seen as as recently as Ezra chapter 6 that even many from the surrounding nations turned from their pagan idolatry and joined the people of God. This was not a racial separation. This was primarily a spiritual issue. It was about who was worshiping the one true God and who wasn't. And intermarriage into the nations and participating in pagan idolatry, this is the sin that had led the nation of Israel into captivity in the first place. That This is what had led them into bondage and slavery. In verse 2, this is called faithlessness. That word there, very simply, it just means to break faith or to act treacherously. And that's what they're doing because to marry into the pagan nations was to commit adultery with the Lord. It was to commit adultery against the Lord. It was to turn their hearts against the Lord. And once again, it's not just the people. It's their leaders who have fallen into sin. But I think there's a really important detail we need to recognize here in verses 1 and 2 that just shows us the power of the authority of God's Word. The people did not come to this recognition because Ezra was browbeating them with the Word of God. Ezra was simply a scribe who was just simply unfolding the Word of God. He was reading the law to the people. And it was as Ezra was reading the law, the people became aware of their sin. 
They recognize their sin. They don't sidestep their sin. They don't suppress their sin. They don't say, well, here's the reason why I'm the exception to this. No, they're broken and they're devastated by this because they realize that once again, they have fallen into the same sin that led them to bondage and captivity in the first place. And church, the inerrant warning that exists in this for us today is that we need the reminder we are prone to repeat our sin. We're prone to repeat our sin. The the reason for their present sinfulness was because they had forgotten their past faithlessness. They'd forgotten the sins of the past. They forgot the devastating consequences that led them to where they were, and they once again have fallen into a place where they're prone to repeat these sins. And so what we have to do when we become aware that we've fallen into sin, when we've allowed the Word of God to do its work on our hearts and on our minds, we have to recognize our sin, and we have to call it for what it is. You asked this morning, how can we recognize the true people of God? How can we know who the real remnant of God's people are? And there's one very simple way. The real remnant of God's people will recognize their sin. They own their sin. The closer we are to the Lord, the more sensitive we become to sin. It's like when you're driving. You know, you sit in the front seat and you throw the car into gear. It's like when you click two times into neutral instead of one time in reverse, you immediately recognize that something is off and we know that we need to shift gears. And this is what it means for us to be the people of God who are walking closely with the Lord. Is the closer we get to, to the Lord, the more sensitive we become to sin. And our textbook repentance begins with recognition of that sin. So we're going to read now uh, the rest of the chapter here, verses 3 through 15. So just bear with me here for a moment while we uh, round out this chapter. Here's how things continue to unfold. Ezra says, as soon as I heard this, now I just want you to watch his reaction and, and how Ezra responds at the revelation that sin once again exists among the people of God. He says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, here's his prayer. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, there's that word again, and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your servants, the prophets. He's just going to quote the word of God here. The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Verse 12, therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. So that was the command of God's word. Don't fall into this. Do not fall into the pagan idolatry of the nations, but they do. 
In verse 13, it says, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. You have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and you have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So textbook repentance begins with recognition of our sin. We see second this morning, it leads to lamentation over our sin. To lament just simply means to come before the Lord in grief and in sorrow and brokenness. Ezra and the people, they make absolutely no attempt to diminish or sidestep what they've done. They make no attempt to suppress it or to minimize it. They make no attempt to make this seem less than it actually is. They make no attempt to talk about why they're the exception, why, why that shouldn't apply to them, how they're mostly getting it right as a nation. No, they make no attempt to minimize this, and they take it head on. I want you to pay attention to an important detail here uh, towards the end of verse 6. There's a shift in the language from singular to plural. Look at verse 6. Ezra starts here praying, he says, oh my God, in the the first person here, he's praying in the singular, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, now watch this, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt is mounted up to the heavens. And you look at that and you say, well, time out. Ezra's not the one who committed this sin. Ezra is not the one who's done wrong here, but this is what Ezra recognizes. Collectively, they are a body of people. Collectively, they're they're a body of people. It's not just them as individuals, and it's okay that they're doing what's right before the Lord. They recognize that anytime sin is allowed to exist within the corporate community of God's people, it has the potential to metastasize to every vital organ in the body and destroy it from within. They recognize it as their own. Now, after uh, the allegations against Ravi Zacharias were proven over the last couple of weeks, there's a, uh, been a major report that was released, and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, the ministry that bears his name, a couple of weeks ago, they uh, released a report, a very powerful statement of public corporate repentance, where they acknowledged the sin that had been committed. Again, you look at that and you say, well, well time out. Like, why are they repenting? Why are they turning uh, from sin? Why, why are they confessing sin that they didn't commit? And it's true that they did not commit this. It's true they didn't, but this is the ministry that bears his name, and they came forward, and they had to acknowledge, listen, we were blind to this. We so uh, honored this man and revered this man. We weren't willing to deal honestly with what was happening in front of us. They didn't take seriously the allegations when they were first made by these women. They said that they'd fostered an environment that enabled and empowered his behavior. And so while they weren't the ones personally who were committing the sin, what they had to publicly acknowledge was that they had minimized and they had suppressed and they had ignored. And for this, they issued this this powerful statement of public repentance. And they said, we recognize that for some, forgiveness may not even be possible and that we don't deserve this. And that ultimately these words have to be proven with actions over time. And again, some of us really struggle with this because what what continues to happen, for example, in the modern church today is at times we have to revisit sins from the past. What we've seen it especially over the course of the last year, 
corporately as a church and globally as a church? Would we continue just to be uh, racked by sins that were uh, committed by racial prejudice and injustice? Some are recent, some from decades or even centuries ago. And we keep asking, like, well, why do these things keep resurfacing? Why does it keep re- having to revisit this? It seems like something from a long time ago. The reason we have to keep dealing with it is because we've never dealt with it honestly. We want to suppress it, minimize it. Well, it was a long time ago. We just kind of need to get over that. We just sort of need to move on. And every time we do this, we minimize the evil that exists. What we have to be willing to do is the people of God is call the sin for what it is. No, yeah, it was bad, but now, no, it's evil. It's, it's wicked. It's unjust. Let's stop trying to whitewash and justify those who consi- committed these sins in the past. This is what invites the wrath and the judgment of God. We have to be people who are willing to deal honestly with sin. So no, as a follower of Jesus, you're not going to stand before God on the judgment day and be held accountable for sins you did not commit. But what we do as the body of Christ is we have to acknowledge that the sin was committed. And we have to commit to saying, God have mercy on our souls if we ever do it again. Don't sidestep it. Don't suppress it. Don't minimize it. We deal with it head on. And we trust it by being honest with sin as we grieve, as we mourn, as we lament that the Lord will meet us in his mercy. I want you to think about it like this for just a second. I've got three boys, and uh, so Emily and I like to have a date night, you know, two, three times a month, and so we'll leave them with babysitters, and uh, every once in a while, I won't give away any names this morning, but every once in a while, uh, one of our three boys uh, is not the best behaved. I won't tell you which one it is, but one of them uh, in particular is is not always the best behaved with, with babysitters. There are people in this room who have babysat our boys, and they know exactly what I'm talking about right now. And so uh, let's say one of them is misbehaving while we're gone. We come back home. We hear the story, hey, gave me a little bit of attitude, kind of argued about this, kind of did this. I don't sit there and say, well, listen, I didn't do that. He did that. So I'm not apologizing for anything. No, what do I do as a parent? Hey, I'm so sorry. Like, you better believe we're going to deal with this. Like, I'm so sorry that happened. Look, I, this is kind of what's going on. This has been a struggle. And we, we do our best to apologize. And I didn't commit the sin. I, I didn't do this, but he bears my name. I'm responsible for him. And so while I'm not going to be held accountable for his actions, I can acknowledge that the action has taken place and we can commit to doing better as a family going forward. And this is what we're called to do is the body of Christ. And every time we try to downplay any role that we have, well, it's, that's not been me. I didn't do those things. No, but what you can do is acknowledge that they've been done. We're so scared as a collective body, I think, in the modern church of lament. We talked about this a little bit last week. Lament feels so undignified. It feels so so beneath us. We're a pull-ourselves-up-by-our-bootstraps kind of people. I mean, we're Americans, right? Back-to-back World War champs. Like, we're, we're, just don't, we're just terrified to be perceived as we. We're, we're terrified to be perceived as not having things together. We're terrified to be perceived as weak and foolish. And so there's not a lot of room in our theology for breaking before the Lord, for weeping and for crying out and for grieving over what's happening in our world. And every time we refuse to press in and allow ourselves to feel the brokenness of this world, the gospel loses a little bit more credibility in their eyes. We have to be willing to do this. And and what Ezra does as the high priest, he's identifying with the sins of the people. And this is foreshadowing the perfect work that would eventually be done by Jesus. The great high priest who was without sin, yet even though he was without sin, he chose to identify with sinners. He was not afraid to be seen with them. He atoned for those sins, and we get to stand and we get to rest in his victory today. Let's read chapter 10 here, verses 1 and 2. 
It says, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So textbook repentance begins with recognition of our sin that leads to lamentation over our sin. Third, that leads to confession for our sin. So the people have now joined Ezra in this confession. Again, just like Ezra, there's no attempt to minimize this. No attempt to suppress it, no trivializing, no sidestepping. They name the sin for what it is, and they address it head on. It was a clear violation of what the Lord had commanded them to do. It was a clear violation of the Word of God. It was the same sin that had led them into exile in the first place, and once again jeopardizes their relationship with the Lord. And we see in verse 1, they're grieved by this. They're broken over this. They wept bitterly over this because they had been compromising the Word of God. But they knew that by confession of their sin, they could be restored. They knew that restoration was possible. They got to live in the promise of knowing that if they would meet the Lord in their mourning, he would meet them in his mercy. Because there's healing and there's power in confession. Verse 2, it says, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. They know they've sinned against God. They know they've grieved his heart. They know they've rebelled against his word. And yet, even in knowing that they sin, they also know that once again, they can be saved. There's power, church, in confession. So the book of James tells us, James exhorts us, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's power in confession. We read it, I, I, I quote it almost every single week when we take communion together at our closing. It's our assurance of pardon from 1 John 1, 9, that if we will confess our sins, it's conditional. If we will confess our sins, if we confess our sins, what does the Lord do? He is faithful and what? He's just. He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I just wonder this morning, what sin do you need to honestly confront for what it is? What sin is in your heart? What prejudice exists in your heart? What pride exists in your heart? Sins of anger, sins of lust, sins of jealousy, sins of gossip, sins of greed, sexual sin, personality sin. Like we like to hide behind our Enneagram number in the 21st century. Like you're a domineering, controlling person. It's like, sorry, I'm an eight. No, you're in sin. That's the issue. We're not justified by these things. But what sin do we need to deal with honestly head on? Because until we do this, we won't experience the healing that comes with that confession. What is the Lord calling you to address for what it is this morning? To lay down at his feet, to stop suppressing it, to stop minimizing it, to stop pretending like it's not as bad as it is. This is what happens when we do continue to suppress sins of the past, or, or even today as, as things happen in our culture. You know, this is what we like to hide behind as the church. Like, well, it's not as bad as it seems. It's always, it's just being hyped up by the media. We like to hide behind this. And this is how we deceive ourselves, church. We like to think that sometimes sin isn't as bad as it seems, and in that regard, we're right. Sin is actually always way worse than it seems. Nothing's being hyped up at all. Anytime sin exists within the body of Christ, anytime it exists within the corporate body of the church, it has the potential to destroy us from the inside out. Once again, in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, we see that the primary threat to the people of God was not external from the world. It was internal amongst themselves. And they had to deal honestly with this sin. They had to be willing to confront the sin for what it was and uncover the sin. I heard Robbie Gallaty say recently, just reflecting on 1 John 1, 9. 
He said, this is the promise we find in Scripture. If we try to cover our sin, then God will uncover our sin. But if we will uncover our sin, the Lord will cover our sin. If we meet him in our mourning, then he'll meet us in his mercy. And this is how uh, this continues to to unfold. Let's read here in verse 3. This confession now leads to action. As it says, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. The text what repentance begins with recognition of our sin. It leads to lamentation over our sin. That leads to confession for our sin. And fourth, it leads to separation from our sin. Now, we really need to look at the context of this particular passage this morning because this is a verse of Scripture. This is a passage of Scripture that has been a stumbling block for many because what's happening on the surface appears just to be cruel and inhumane and unjust. I mean, they're they're sending away wives, they're sending away children, and it all just feels very, very uncomfortable to us. And and we look at this, and again, this passage has been a a stumbling block that's caused many to say things like, man, I I just can't believe in a God who would want his people to do something like this. You know, more than this, if we look in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul uh, does tell us as followers of Jesus, we should not marry unbelievers. He calls it being unequally yoked. He says we shouldn't marry unbelievers. Yet in the same way, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says if a believer is married to an unbeliever, we shouldn't seek to be separated. So on the surface, again, it, it doesn't just appear cruel and inhumane and unjust. It also looks like a contradiction of what we find in the New Testament. So what's going on here? I just want to explain this in the simplest terms. I know how to explain it uh, for us this morning. What sets these marriages apart in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, uh, at the bottom line, is that they were illegal. That these were, not, uh, these were not lawful or legal marriages, either in the eyes of God or in the eyes of the empire. You go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Again, it was strictly forbidden in God's word, uh, marrying into the pagan nations. It was idolatry. But then more than that, in Ezra chapter 8, we saw that Ezra had been commissioned by King Artaxerxes to uphold the Jewish law. And so for the people to continue in these marriages, they weren't just standing in contradiction to the word of God. They were standing in contradiction to what had been pronounced by the king. He wasn't even a follower of the Lord wasn't even a worshiper of the Lord. And so to remain married was ultimately not just to invite the wrath of God upon them, it was to invite the wrath of the king upon them. And so as difficult as it was, it was actually an act of mercy to send them away because to remain married one way or another would have led to their ultimate destruction. They had to come to terms. They had to come to grips with what was happening. But these were illegal, unlawful marriages, both in the uh, eyes of God's word, in the eyes of the king. And so uh, they take the ultimate step in doing what needed to be done. So if you look in verses 10 through 14, this is how that whole process unfolds. It says, Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open nor is this a task for one day or two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. So once again, there's no suppressing. There's no sidestepping. There's no minimizing. We have greatly transgressed in this matter. It's, Ezra, it's bad. We're not going to be able to handle this in one day. This is going to take a long time. It says, let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. And only Jonathan, the son of Asael, and Josiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. 
Verse 16 says, Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the father's houses. According to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. The rest of the book goes on to detail, gives us a manifest of those who were involved in this. And so they begin this process of, of separating those who had gotten involved in intermarriage. And again, what we know that God in his mercy, there, there still is a provision that's been made. If you go back just a couple of chapters to Ezra chapter 6, we see that there was great rejoicing because there was an opportunity for the people to turn from their pagan idolatry and remain with the people of God. But there's some who didn't. And we get to the end of the book here, and, and you look, you see the list, it's, it's really only about 100 names, and we're talking about a, a nation of, of tens of thousands of people. So again, we look at this and we say, well, well what's the big deal? What, what's the possible impact here? Why, why is it such a big deal that such a small number of people among nations, why couldn't they just be allowed to stay here? Because church, if God is going to move among his people, his people can have zero tolerance for sin. When Jesus Christ calls us to, call, to follow him, he calls for unrivaled devotion. Lord willing, here in several weeks, we're going to look at the hard sayings of Jesus from the New Testament, the things Jesus said that we tend to skip in our Bibles. And what we're going to see through that message series is we're going to see how the Lord challenges everything. He challenges us relationally. He challenges us when it comes to family. He challenges us financially. He doesn't lower the bar for anybody to rise up and follow him. They're willing to deal honestly with sin. They're willing to go through the difficult work of separating, even though it's one of the most difficult things we can imagine. But when Jesus Christ calls us to follow him, he demands unrivaled allegiance. There can be no competition for him in our midst. For the people to remain married to the nations was to be committing adultery against the Lord and was to invite his wrath and judgment upon them as a people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the apostle Paul talks about the, the difference between true repentance and fake repentance. He says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Want to know uh, an easy way to distinguish the true remnant of God's people from those who are fake Christians? The true remnant of God's people will actually take steps to separate from their sin. And this is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 7. He said there, there's a worldly sorrow, like there's a worldly sadness. And, and what that worldly sadness means, it means just being sorry for your sin. But godly grief, godly sorrow, it means separating from your sin. It's not, I come to church Sunday morning, I feel guilty about it for five, ten minutes, I take communion, kind of wipe the slate clean, and then go right back to business on Monday morning. No. Genuine repentance means we have actually taken steps to be separate from our sin. Again, it's only about 100 families in a nation of thousands. We say, what's the big deal? Before there can be revival among God's people, there has to be repentance within God's people. We have to be people with a zero-tolerance policy for sin. A.W. Tozer has said of repentance and reflecting on what is true repentance and false repentance. He says, hasty repentance means shallow spiritual experience and lack of certainty in the whole life. Let godly sorrow do her healing work until we allow the consciousness of sin to wound us. We will never develop a fear of evil. It is our wretched habit of tolerating sin that keeps us in our half-dead condition. I've had this conversation with, with many of you over the course of the last week, and I've had just some amazing exchanges back and forth and small group conversations. He asked the question, he said, Taylor, when we pray for revival, what exactly is it that we're praying for? 
Because many of us, I'd, I'd be willing to bet, we've never seen a true movement of God in our lives. Like, we've never seen the true outpouring of the Holy Spirit in such a supernatural way that it can only be attributed to the glory and the power of God where multitudes of people are professing faith in Jesus Christ. We've never seen something like this. And you say, Taylor, what is it that we're praying for? We pray for true revival. Among the church, it's very, very simple. True revival means that we repent of our wretched habit of tolerating sin. True revival happens when the church repents of its wretched habit of tolerating sin. When the people of God draw a line in the sand and declare that it is unacceptable for us to remain half dead in our spiritual state. When we get serious about this, when we will do this work, that's when we trust that the Lord will bring revival and awakening to his people. And this is the picture that we get this morning, is that we've got to be people who are willing to recognize our sin. We have to be people who lament and who grieve over our sin, who are broken over our sin, who understand the effects and the devastating consequences of our sin. We have to be people who are willing to do the bold work of confessing our sin. But as we confess, we don't do this to stay in brokenness. We do it because we can trust that the Lord will meet us in his mercy, that we'll experience true freedom, that we'll experience true healing, that we will not remain in our half-dead spiritual condition. But more than this, it's not just being sorry for our sins because, church, sorry is only enough to condemn you. We have to take steps to separate from our sins. We invite accountability in our lives. If necessary, we walk away from some friendships. We walk away from some unhealthy relationships. We walk away from situations where we know that we are prone and vulnerable to fall into temptation and be led into sin. We actually take steps to walk away, and we do it by the resurrection power of the Spirit of God within us, who gives us everything that we need to follow him away from temptation. But this is the promise that you and I get to rest in this morning. If you and I will do the hard work, if we will pass through the fire of repentance, the Lord will send the fire of revival. You want to see God move in this community. You want to see God move in our church. You want to see God revive and awaken his people. We have to be people who deal honestly with our sin. Church, repentance is a whole lot more than a cover endorsement on a book. Revival will continue to tarry until we learn to deal honestly with sin. As we start to close out this morning, I want to read something to you that I received this week that was just uh, incredibly powerful. Because again, I think where, where many of us are right now, like you hear the things I'm talking about this morning. This has just been the general buzz in our church over the last several weeks. Is, is, man, there's been no shortage of people saying, man, I, I'm so eager to see God move. I want to see him revive our church. I want to see him move in our community. I want to experience the glory of the Lord. I want to see him fall. I want my children to know that God moves and visits his people. Like, we're desperate for this, and yet at the same time, many of us, because we've never seen it happen, are like, but I don't know exactly what it is I'm praying for. How do I pray for this? And, and what does it mean for it to, to, to go before the Lord? To, why is it that we're seeking him and praying and fasting? And what is it we're asking him to do? Well, th this past week, uh, I got an email from uh, Jim and Judy Enter in our church family. How many of you know the Enter's show of hands? Uh, if you don't, you need to um, get to know them. And uh, I have their permission to share this this morning because Judy shared a, a testimony with me this week that was so powerful that I think is going to speak to a lot of us today because they were in that same boat earlier this week saying, Lord, what, what exactly is it that we're praying for? And so... What we get from this this morning is a picture of what happens if you will humble yourself, seek the Lord, and cry out to him to do a work for the sake of his name. She wrote to me earlier this week. She said, Taylor, I've inquired of the Lord this morning to write, and believing I've heard yes, 
I write first as a testimony to the Lord's greatness and goodness, and secondly, to encourage you. So briefly, this is how it happened. Sunday evening, our small, small group of six discussed the sermon. At the end, I asked, now what do we do with the call to pray for revival? I confess that I've never prayed for revival and didn't know how to do it, but I believed if I cried to the Lord to teach me that he would. Warm responses and confessions from the group on we've never done it either. Jim and I rose Monday morning sharing what we would lay down for 50 days and fasting and said we would consult the Lord on his call to us through you to pray for revival. Jim began to search for information on genuine past revivals and researched any author he found. He began bringing to me Duncan Campbell, The Lewis Awakening, as well as The Price and Power of Revival. We watched glorious Christian revivals on Amazon, Campbell, Wesley, Seven Robert, awestruck at the simplicity but genuineness of the prayers for God to rain down revival through his Holy Spirit. About six hours later, we sat down across the room from one another, basically silent at what God had shown us, but agreeing we wanted him. As we were taught that day, a complete submission to the Holy Spirit is necessary in order for God to work in us what pleaseth him. We confessed that we had shut God out of parts of our lives and were prepared to allow him complete access. And then nothing can describe what happened except the Holy Spirit fell, drawing from us unexplainable groans and cries and worship and pleading for revival for our own lives, our children, our community. And this went on from some time, for some time and would wax and wane until he was finished. The joy was with us in sleep and when we arose. I pray we will never be the same. Hallelujah. Me encourage my pastor and brother. God is on the move. As for me and my household, we are praying through the power of the Holy Spirit for genuine revival. I just wonder this morning, who will join Jim and Judy in her? Who will join those who have counted the cost and said, I want to pray and fast and seek the Lord. I'm going to humble myself before the Lord, and I don't know what to pray, but I trust that if I lift my voice and cry out to God, he'll teach me to pray. Same way he taught his disciples, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. He was eager to answer this request. As a church, as we prepare our hearts and minds for communion this morning, I just want you to bow your heads with me here for a few minutes. And I want to challenge us to follow this example this morning of textbook repentance. It begins first with recognizing your sin. calling it what it is. Don't ignore it. Don't suppress it. Don't minimize it. Don't sidestep. Don't compare it to somebody else's and say, well, at least it's not as bad as them. No. In the eyes of an infinite, infinitely holy God, will you be honest about your sin? Recognize it for what it is. What words, what actions, what behaviors, what habits what is clinging to you that is keeping you from faithfully following Jesus? As you recognize your sin, do you lament over that sin? Do you grieve over your sin? Do you mourn over your sin? Are you broken by your sin? Does it bother you? And if it doesn't, ask the Lord to break you. Invite his brokenness. Invite the burden. Are you grieved? Do you mourn? Do you lament over the sins of this world? Over the sins of the church? Over the sins of our nation? Or 
or if you've just grown hard and cold and cynical and, and refusing to feel anything that's happening around you. And the, the biggest blessing the Lord could give us this morning is once again being burdened for the lostness and the brokenness of this world. And I we confess our sins. Just take a moment to lay at the Lord's feet what he already knows to be true. We're not hiding anything from him. You do this with confidence today that if you will come to him in your mourning, he'll meet you in his mercy. If you confess our sins, he's faithful. He is just. He will forgive you. Doesn't matter if you're repeating the sin, doesn't matter how heinous the sin, how egregious the sin, there is nothing you have been committing that can outmatch the mercy of the cross. Come to him in confession. But now comes the hard part. Because repentance is not just feeling sorry for our sin, repentance is separating from our sin, it's walking away from our sin. And not to other sin, not to lesser sins, but to the perfect righteousness and holiness that we receive by faith through Jesus Christ. What step do you need to take this week? Where do you need to invite accountability? What do you need to confess to a brother or sister so that you may be healed? So you can chase into the light what the enemy has been wanting you to keep in the dark. What accountability do you need in your life? What encouragement do you need in your life? What steps do you need to take this week to not just feel sorry for your sin, but to actually cease your sin? And to lay hold of the perfect righteousness you can find in Jesus Christ. So Father, we come to you this morning in desperation. God, we are desperate to see you move. Desperate to see you do a work for the glory of your name. In our community, in our nation, but Lord, we know it starts here with your church. So God, I come to you this morning, I confess not just that I have sinned, but I'm a sinner, Lord. In need of repentance, Father. In need of of a, a renewed mind and a transformed heart that I can only find through faith in your son, Jesus. So Father, keep us anchored to you. Keep us tethered to you. Keep us grounded in your word. Make us people who are serious about dealing with our sin because we are serious about seeing you move. So Lord, in the remainder of these days, as we as a congregation, as we pray, as we fast, as we seek you, as we lay things down, Lord, don't let us trade them for lesser pleasures. Help us trade them to find total pleasure in you. God, we want to see you move. We want to see you revive this church. We want to see you awaken your com this community and do a work for the glory of your name. So, Father, as we come to this table this morning, we do it with an awareness of what it cost you to save us. You gave us your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb, the priest who was without sin, who chose to identify with sinners, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed so that we could, by faith, 
repent of our sins, turn from our sins, call on his name and be saved and be filled with the power of your Holy Spirit to walk in holiness and righteousness all our days before you. Father, burden us today once again. Help us to deal honestly with our sin. Help us to do business with you. Thank you this morning for meeting with us. And be glorified now as we come to the table, as we sing, as we worship, and we praise your name. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.